0: Welcome to Tell Me The Score. My guest in this episode is Nitin Sawney. Today we talk about his early life growing up in Rochester and Kent and right through to his work as a performer, a composer, a writer, a comedian and now as an enabler of new talent in his position as chair of the PRS Foundation. I've got to know Nitin over the last few years working on several of his projects but most recently and one that comes up in the interview quite often is a concert at the Roundhouse we did together which was beset by COVID the band were dropping like flies and I think we lost three members a flautist percussionist another violinist Dale, who normally does the the gig and so we were picking up a lot of slack and it was a scary evening but actually a, a really wonderful and exciting one and i've never played to an audience as warm as that and they i think they were just thrilled at the end of the pandemic to be watching live music and and they were they were wonderfully engaged it was a really exciting evening
1: Yes, yeah, so, I mean, I grew well. I grew up in Rochester in Kent, and and the the actual place I lived in was Borstal, um, but right. not in the institution. But um, but yeah, I grew up in a, in a place called Manor Lane, which was uh, just by the by the Medway River Marina, and uh, it was really picturesque. There were lots of you know, you, there was a castle nearby, the cathedral, beautiful river, and the bridge, and so on. But it was, um, and actually, I kind of had an idyllic first kind of few years in my childhood um it was really lovely we'd we'd just play as local children in the in the park nearby and in our garden and so on and I had two older brothers and it it felt pretty good um but then i I think it must have been when I was about five or six actually um, I remember um I do remember stuff about the rivers of blood speech from Enoch Powell and it was kind of um it was Really interesting, because I do feel that there was a change, and I remember my first day at infant school actually when I was five there was a, there was a kid that came up and just sta- started shouting racist abuse at me that he must have learnt from his dad or from someone else or brothers or whatever and um, and then it just continued from there, so because we were very isolated as an Asian family there there weren 't very many around, if any. Um, I think there was one other family that I can recall in that whole area but um but you know it continued on till I was about 14 something like that there was a lot of racism um you know that was very hard to deal with you know i mean right up to about 1979 i think um you know i, th- I think the anti nazi league changed things a lot people like tom robinson coming out and saying what he did you know and johnny rotten you know the sex pistols actually coming out and and um and really you know uh, saying that the national front were an awful organization and so on, that actually really helped so um yeah it was it was a dark time. there were lots of skinheads on the streets. the national front would leaflet outside my school gates growing up, and you know it was it was um it was really awful yeah in that and, way and
0: musically you I know your parents weren 't musicians, but they there was a lot of music in your house wasn 't
1: there yeah, there was a great deal of music in my house i mean my my dad. Uh, played a lot of music from everywhere, from Cuba, from flamenco um, guitarists like uh, Philip John Lee, He used to play with Paco um, Pena, who actually then taught me for a little while um, when I was about eleven or something. And um, and yeah, lots of lots of uh, crooners, lots of music from all around the world. My dad had a very eclectic taste. My mum listened, and my dad did as well. A lot, a lot to Panditji Ravi to a lot of Indian classical music. Um, And, you know, because I grew up playing classical piano, I was always listening to classical music through my piano teacher or, um, you know, through radio stations. So I kind of had... A very eclectic taste, and and uh, and also jazz was a big thing because my dad loved Miles Davis, and um, and so I was listening a lot to bebop and and Miles as well. Yeah. And,
0: and do you remember what the first instrument you played was? Was it a piano or a guitar? Yeah, it was a piano right. first
1: of all. So I was playing a lot of classical piano when I was very young. Uh, and then uh, did you have one in the house? Yeah, yeah, yeah we did. Well, um, from about the age of when I was about four or five, um, the my mum and dad got one donated from um uh, from the local church because they were throwing it out basically so um so my mum knew the person who was the church organist and said we we'd love to have it so that was great so i suddenly had a piano to play with and uh, and i got lessons from the age of five yeah
0: right and did, what did you, were you doing sort of uh, grades or yeah you yeah just, all the was grades it free and, so on, yeah, I did, I, and which i loved and your parents were supportive of that
1: yeah they were very supportive yeah i mean they they were um uh they were great actually I mean I think my mum my mum because she'd uh she'd studied Indian classical dance um she was had a great respect for the arts and so to my dad I mean my dad uh, was a really good painter actually as well as you know he was a he lectured in botany in India he also um you know was a chemical engineer but he had a lot of love for the arts and um and was interested in music and and art in lots of ways.
0: And do you remember the time when that when it went from being something you just enjoyed doing and wanted to get good at to wanting to really to really do it? Because I know that you you didn't study it, did you? No, I, no. I, from from my memory, you studied law. I think. That's and, right. Yeah. And. And then we're more into comedy at the beginning. Is that well?
1: I studied law and did accountancy, but I met and uh, qualified as an accountant. But my, I met um, Sanjay Bhaskar, um yes. at uh, at college, and uh, we got on really well, and we actually formed a comedy duo. So we kind of uh, and we ended up touring up and down the country, uh, called the Secret Asians right. there was a duo, called the Secret Asians, which was great fun. And then that led to goodness gracious me, because we um, on on BBC television, because uh, we got picked up by Anul, uh, Anul Gupta and Sharat Sardana when we did a little review show at um, at the uh, uh, where was it? It was it was in um, in uh, near Kennington uh, Oval House. Right. Yeah, yeah. So um, and we did that, and uh, yeah, it was really really good fun uh, performing with Sanjay on stage. But again, it wasn't something that I. Uh, ironically i didn't take comedy that seriously i was i was kind of always um, you know playing in bands and i'd i'd already released albums by the time goodness gracious me was due to go on television so i'd already done 2 years um on radio 4 with uh, with the team and i was part of the team and i was a writer as well um but then i kind of thought well look you know i want to i want to stop now um because i'm i was i'd just been offered to produce um Uh, Amar who was a young singer who'd been signed by Rob Dickens for Warner Brothers and so they asked me if I would produce her album so I just thought you know that's what I need to concentrate on so I left the group but I still was in the let's go for an English sketch which is very famous and a few yeah. yeah.
0: And did you like that touring I guess you did those kind of provincial venues with Sanjeev then I mean that's hard work but I imagine it to be quite Quite fun, especially if the oh, two of you are there. You're with your great friend
1: and yeah, having a lovely time. Yeah, fantastic. And and Sandy's still a very good friend, and I, I see him quite often. And Mira as well. I saw Mira uh, about three days ago. So right. yeah, um, they're um, they're lovely people. And um, and yeah, I've I've kind of you know stayed in touch with him. I mean, we we shared a, a flat for ten years um, as well. And you know, um, so we we're very close. But also, um, I guess it was kind of it was nice because I was quite intense with music sometimes i mean some of the stuff i wrote and some of the stuff i was doing was quite dark i'd be in clubs as a dj as well um and it'd be very dark kind of intense times you know that we were doing a lot of drum and bass kind of infused music we were doing things where it was um in a way for me music was quite a dark catharsis as right. opposed to uh, comedy, which obviously was a to- totally the opposite, and it was actually quite good to have that um, yin, yin yang kind of uh, kind of feel about um, about the way in which I would use or think of performance. And it, I mean,
0: were you thinking? I mean, you said it was because catharsis. Do you think? I mean, is it was it a therapy for something? Were you getting something off your
1: chest? The comedy.
0: No, I mean, I meant that when you like the, those dark definitely. sort of DJ yeah, sets, definitely. or
1: yeah, definitely without a doubt. I mean, uh, music was. Um, you know I mean the kinds of albums I was writing so I wrote uh, Spirit Dance and then Migration and Displacing the Priest was a lot to do with how I felt like at, at school um, I'd been kind of indoctrinated um, in lots of ways into into. I've, I felt like I'd been forced into a Christian kind of uh, you know I wasn't religious really I mean I, I kind of grew up you know with a Hindu background um, but I felt like it, there was a lot of indoctrination that was going on and, uh, and a lot of guilt-tripping, you know, of, of young children mm-hmm. when I was growing up at school. Um, and, and so I kind of felt like I wanted to rebel against that because I thought, well, you know, we're, we're, we can be our own priest, you know, we can yes. be our own spiritual guide and not have this kind of external um, pressure to, to believe in something in order to fit in yeah. to a culture.
0: And uh, something that you mentioned before about your your mother being a, a dancer, and yeah. that I think that runs all the way through Indian music, the connection, I think we don't quite have it in our tradition, mm. the absolute connection between dance and music. You're absolutely and, right. And yeah. do you think, is that something that's helped you, that sort of, the mix? I mean, rhythmically, I find I love watching dancers, and yeah. I had a wonderful friend at, at college who used to say that musicians were were sculpting time. Yeah, And... But with dancers they're sculpting time and space at the same time and that, yeah. i mean yeah. d- so do you conceive of your music are you imagining people dancing to it maybe that's a naive question um, but
1: i work a lot with visuals because yeah. right? as a film composer and somebody who worked a lot with theater and and dance and video games and so on um but i i think uh when i'm writing i like to visualize um but not necessarily dance i mean dance is kind of But I love, you know, I worked a great deal with Akram Khan and with other dancers as well. But, um, um, you know, and it's great to work with great choreographers. But I think you're absolutely right with Indian classical music, for example, which I always had a keen interest in. um, You know, there was this whole background of the Natya Shastra, which is a treatise that dated about 200 BC to, well, maybe even... 500 BC around that time between those in those 300 years and um, and it was actually a blueprint in lot of, lots of ways for how the arts could work together so there are lots of references to so there's a common vocabulary as you've as you've heard and as you know yeah. um, you know there are ways of speaking rhythms because it, it, both are a oral tradition with Kathak dance or Bharatanatyam dance or Kathakali and so on all of these come from an oral tradition of speaking rhythms yeah. and then working in that way which actually the tabla player or a Madangan player depending whether you're thinking of south indian or north indian classical music they will actually also know those same rhythms and that same system so there's a there is a whole system of communication um, rhythmically between the uh, between the musician and the dancer that obviously you know, came a cropper with Western classical music when, for example, Stravinsky yes. stormed on stage with Rite of Spring and lost his come, with yeah, the dancers exactly, yeah. with the with the dancers because yes. they couldn't follow his time yeah, his his time signature yes. changes. Um and so on. So it's kind of um so i guess it's kind of all of that uh, all of that kind of history with indian classical music is a lot more rich um even with jazz you know it was an unusual thing when dave brubeck came up with um take 5 you know yes. uh, there were, it was quite unusual at the time to hear something in a different time signature with jazz and so on so it's kind of it's interesting how indian classical music has rhythmically evolved in in a very powerful way in, in both in the choreography and in the in the um Music itself. Um, so yeah, I guess within classical music, it does take play with um, time, space, and and perception of time in in lots of different ways as well. Um, yeah.
0: yeah, I was thinking the stuff I've done with ballet companies. It's a long time ago, but mm. there's definitely a thing where the ballet dancers rehearse with a piano for weeks yeah. or however many yeah. weeks, and then like the band turns up, yeah. and suddenly it becomes another thing. I'm mm. imagining in Indian classical music. That distinction isn't quite isn't quite so formal. and
1: no, because actually the dancers can work on their own for a very long time ah. and then and then an ensemble because they'll know a whole pattern of uh, a whole load of patterns, you know, and and they'll work to the patterns. So they might even recite the patterns even as they're dancing um together, or they might have a, a teacher uh, reciting them, or they may just know them and just practice with those particular. So they're, they're, for example, they're called jatis, where where you'll have in Kathak dance, you'll have a a classical dancer who will know... um, you know, within uh, within the ten beat cycles. I mean, we went through some yeah, yeah, of yeah. the gig that you did, yeah, use, yeah. which was wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Um, And thank you again. Oh well, <laughs> I had a really
0: lovely time. And like, we were mentioning before that it was—I think how many? T- I mean, it had been cancelled several times oh because God. of COVID, and nearly had to be cancelled oh, again. A nightmare. Yeah. So crazy. you were missing yeah. Uh, Ashraf. Yeah. Uh, Ashwin. Uh, who uh, Ashwin on, sorry. Um,
1: who's uh, Ashwin's the uh, uh, bansuri player from India, and then Arif, who's um, the doubler player, um, and, Aos, and Aos, who you. Who you've beautifully filled in for um playing violin but it was um it was mad because you know that was our usual uh, band so out of the 5 uh, of us, there were there were only three of us remaining. You know, um, in the actual band. Well, no, six of us who'd be on tour. Uh, there were only three of us remaining. So literally half of the core band had, had gone. Yeah. And then we, you know, thankfully we had a wonderful string section um, led by yourself. Well, it was we a lov- it was had... a lovely gig, yeah. wasn't it? Well, and, it, was, and it the... went really well. It was quite a. But
0: sometimes I think those kind of emergency scenarios. Yeah. It, it focuses the mind, and something special will happen. Yeah. Because you will you be getting people to push themselves.
1: Just to clarify, for the sake of your podcast, yeah, yeah, yeah. we're talking about the uh, playing at the roundhouse. Indeed, uh, yeah. which was lovely. We had a sold out audience. We had um, it was at the end of a of a lovely tour that we'd just done. But we lost, uh, as you could hear, we we've lost quite a few of our um, of our uh, key performers. But it, it still worked, and that was that was really exciting that it still could could hang together as a gig uh, which i think was really nice because that was that was very much about structuring a show and actually you know thinking how can a show still work you know and it's about making sure that the show in a way is greater than the sum of its parts and i think that's that was the case with that particular show which i feel very proud of
0: i really felt and i don't often feel it I felt like the audience were were quite a big part of that show.
1: Definitely. and just
0: the It was a very lovely atmosphere and a really kind... It felt like there was a lot of love in that room.
1: Well, I, I actually threw myself at their mercy at the beginning yeah. by actually kind of being very transparent and saying, look, we haven't got quite a lot of the band here and so on. And I think what happened was... But because I'd actually owned up to the fact that we'd we'd lost some people, um, you know, due to COVID, everyone really was very supportive, and and I think rose to that and wanted to uh, us to succeed as a as yes. a band. Um, and they they, as you rightly said, I mean, there was a great deal of it was a very symbiotic relationship with the audience on that evening, and I think it worked beautifully as a result. Yeah, yeah,
0: uh, I, I, it was a lovely atmosphere. Mm. Just coming back to the rhythms, mm. I, I know that you. You were quite mathematical as a, yeah. as a child. Do you think the, the maths uh, h- helps you understand those rhythms, or oh, do you definitely. think there's a connection? There? Yeah, I,
1: lo- I love mathematics, and I, and I, I kind of, uh, but but with Indian classical music, it is intrinsically very mathematical in the way it works. Um, the technical aspects of it, um, you know, it's it has to feel poetic. It has to feel lyrical. It has to feel. Um, You know, aesthetically pleasing, but it's at the same time. I think the mathematics actually enhances that in the same way it did with Bach. You know, in the way Bach used mathematics, but with Indian classical music, a lot of it is about a system that everyone can uh, learn and can work with. And I think it's really understanding the Thal system what the highs are, how the highs can work in different ways and and so on to the point that you you feel very comfortable with them. And it's really interesting because it's about an intuitive feel for mathematics um, where you're kind of training your mind and 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 body in lots of ways to to really recognize um, the mathematics rhythm
0: and um, were, you, were you did you start learning that at, at home? Was that just something that was just around
1: uh, well, it was something where i i studied in uh, i studied a bit of Dublin um and Sihara and nearby Gurdwara when I was about thirteen uh which was great i mean it was great to have the western classical background as well and a bit of jazz and so on um because and flamenco because all of that really opened my mind understanding how Indian classical music worked from quite an informed perspective and it felt then that there wasn't I didn't feel that there was any real kind of difference um, I was you know between western uh, classical music and Indian classical music it was more about finding different ways in which things could work together and how I could use knowledge that I acquired from studying some Indian classical music to enhance my understanding of music altogether. And then everything just felt like it flowed from that. I didn't really ever consciously think, oh, I want to put together an Indian classical idea with a Western classical idea or a Western, you know, or, or, a, or a, you know, chord progression or anything like that. It just kind of happened that way, really. Yeah.
0: And, and tell me, when you're writing, mm. are you, do you think of it as a quite a private process or are you imagining... Playing it live to people, Do you, when does the sharing of it start? Or? It
1: very much depends on the context. I mean, for example, with... Um uh, you know, when you're working with film, as you know, um, you, you you can have a director in a room. You can have two directors in a room, which is what I've had before, um, and uh, and it's it can be really interesting because they can be sitting either side of you while you're composing, which is what happened, for example, in the Human Planet series. Right. Um, I mean, that,
0: that could go that that could be really quite tense, couldn't it? Or it could work beautifully. But
1: what was really funny was that when I had um, a friend of mine, um, her son was actually. Um, doing some work experience with me, and he was about fourteen years old, and um, he was sitting on one side of me because he was just interested in what I was doing. And then I had a director for one series just talking to me about uh, what they wanted, and they, the director, interrupted me several times while I was um, while I was coming up with an idea, and <laughs> the, the the boy who was fourteen turned around and said. Um, it, and not in a precocious way, actually, um, just said, sorry, can I just say something? I I think it'd probably be more helpful if he could just try to try to figure out on his own for just a short while until he kind of gets. And it's just so funny that a child can see. Yeah. So it's quite it's quite funny. But at times, yeah, it can be frustrating when when you're working with um I mean, I, I did have one person who one time when I was writing a piece of music actually said to me, um could you, uh, 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 well, yeah. What's what's that noise? Can you stop? You, you know, I, I don't want that noise in the piece. I said, what noise? And they said, that 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 noise. It sounds like a ticking. I said, that's the metronome. I'm just working yeah, with yeah. it to try to get the music yeah. in the right time. But it can be it can be a crazy thing. Writing on your own is fair, is a very deep process and very emotional. But sometimes you're working on certain um, productions and you're aware of the time limits that you're under under time constraints. And you just you know, it's actually very helpful for people to give you input. If it's a commission, you want it's for something else. It's for for someone else's vision. Uh, if you're writing for your own album, then it's very different. But if it's a collaboration, again, it's kind of about bouncing ideas off another yeah. person who's going to contribute equally or or partially uh, to, to whatever you're doing. Yeah,
0: it's great that you mentioned collaboration. I wanted to talk about collaboration. <laughs> Do you think that, I mean... It- is that something that you really seek, or does it just happen because lots of people want to work with you? Is something I mean, that frees you up, or
1: Yeah, I have a lot of people who who i um who I love working with and who I you know feel think the same way about me um because they're they're good friends and they're people that I've enjoyed working with over the years. but also, um, yeah, I'm I'm lucky in that I have some degree of profile that allows me to work with the people that I'm interested in working with. Um, and that's been great, you know. I mean, uh, uh, over the last few years, it's been a, a real godsend, you know, that I've actually collaborated with some fantastic musicians and, and human beings that I, I really ad- admire. I mean, you know, it's... it's I mean, this year... Um, I ended up as a member of Pink Floyd, which was quite yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. Um there there were some wonderful things that happened and also working on say as a producer on Jules Holland's um last album with um you know, music that he'd, he'd done with, um, made with Herbie Hancock or um, Jamie Callum and Tom Jones, who came into the studio and, you know, some amazing people um, who who uh, contributed in so many ways and working even with Rod Stewart this year, was, which was really interesting. I mean, you know, who's got a great voice, you know, in the studio. And and it's it's great. You, you kind of end up working with people that you kind of, you know, kind of grew up watching or have an interest in. And uh, and suddenly they come to life. It's like uh, it's like when I was um, when I was a kid. I always thought, you know, when I was about three or four, I always thought that 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 the television actually contained these little characters. And um, and you know, it's weird to discover as an adult that they all come to life in front of you. And
0: I think the last time I came here, it was to do something for Jules's al- oh, yeah. album. yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. And I, and I was there were two strands to that. Really, the first was that I was thinking. And actually it's been borne out because there are, there are a lot of tracks on that album. Mm, aren't there? Yeah, I was thinking, yeah. like, how do you... Maybe it's not your job to contain someone like Jules Holland who can yeah. sort of sit down and play with anybody at any yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. What, as a producer, what, what, do you have a sort of house style? Do you see yourself as a carer or
1: an I try to bring out what he wants to bring out in himself so i try to help him i'm facilitating that as much as i can so i'm listening to what he's saying what he wants you know it's it's really about it's his album it's his expression and if i can help him achieve that then that's great um i think um, what was a real uh, a really lovely moment for me was actually because his thing isn't really reading music. I mean, he's much more of an intuitive musician. Um, I mean, I'm not the best sight. I'm not like you guys. You sight read, like, unbelievably. But, um, but you know, I can read music and, and write music. Um, and so with uh, he wanted to do a duet with Lang Lang. And what was really lovely was to write the other part for Lang Lang um, so, that, so that it works. Because he actually, I think Jules was kind of... Um, wondering how he could do that, how he could have a duet with Lang. Uh, so uh, how did it
0: work? Was, was Jules improvising so Jules at all? A, or No,
1: he wrote a piece and then i wrote wrote out a, another part for it right. um that lang lang then went on to play um, so that was really nice and it was just that jules hadn't really got anyone to do that with yeah. you know and so uh, he was really happy and very excited and because, so uh, you
0: know. to be technical how did you record that were you were they both in the same room or did you No, you, you um, lang accept- lang
1: re- uh, d- recorded his part um independently and then sent it and through sent it- and oh. then we put it together great. but it was um, but it was great because he played with jules he had the music, and then it just worked like that. It was just as simple as that. But I, it's interesting because Jules is used to playing with other jazz players or boogie woogie players and so on, on the on keyboards, yeah. um, and improvisationists. But he's not used to having set compositions, uh, you know, that have been that have been written for someone else to play with him. Yeah, yeah. So I think that he re- he really liked that. He, he, he found that really uh, rewarding, and uh, I think it's it th- this album brought out a lot of. Uh, different aspects of Jules's uh, music that that I don't think he'd explored as much before. Yeah, I
0: always love going to the, his kind of magical uh, studio. Oh, it's lovely. Helicon Mountain. Helicon, yeah, which is, is like a sort of toy town, yeah, yeah, and yeah. in yeah. every sense. Yeah. Well, he's
1: also, yeah, he's a, he's a great uh, train enthusiast. Right. He's got a mini railway. There's downstairs. a little, yeah, yeah. yeah, which is fantastic. But he's very, he's such a lovely human. Being. Yes, and this is the thing actually that I that I think guides. My choices of collaborators is that I have to really like them as people, yes. and I have to really get on with them and feel that they're um, they're interesting. Um, you know as in, in terms of what they have to say because I, I think for me more and more I think of music as a language and I've, I've always thought that to some degree but I think it's it, that feeling increases over time. to be honest with you, music in itself no longer really interests me that much. I think what is it saying and why is it saying that yes. and that those are the questions I always ask and uh, beyond that everything feels like a technical exercise or, or whatever you know it doesn't it doesn't really, i i don't feel moved or interested in music that isn't speaking to me yes
0: and, and on that subject of of working with people you like i do think if you're going to fall out with someone you know give yourself a deadline and trap yourself in a studio together for a really long time i mean it, mm. that that's when it's going to happen isn't it yeah, it's, yeah, it's, a, it's a quite a tense environment you know um and so that that subject of collaboration, you've worked with Complicite as well. I just wanted to touch on that because well, extraordinary. Of, oh, yeah, yeah okay. I'm on
1: the board of Complicité and I'm also um uh, godfather to Simon McBurney's um son Theo, um, who's a lovely kid and um I really get on well with his wife as well, who actually did a, a piano recital only about uh, a week and a half ago, something like that, at um, at their at their studio, at their house. And uh, attended by about seventy odd people, and it was beautiful. And she was playing a lot of Bach, and she played um, an arrangement of Breathing Light that I'd done for Helene Grimo, yeah. and um, and that was fantastic. It, so it was. It but Simon's amazing. We we did. Um, I mean, you talked about my love of mathematics and the piece that I did with him uh, with complicity was um, was about Ramanujan, the the Indian mathematician who came over to Cambridge University to work with G. Hardy as a as a mathematician for quite a long time. But that was uh, called a disappearing number, and within that uh, we use some Indian classical uh, patterns and so on to kind of get across. Um, the workings of Ramanujan's mind, which was a really interesting approach. And I really respect Simon because he will totally immerse himself in trying to understand the mechanics of how... Yeah, um, Indian classical music works, or whatever he's working with, he will really, really go out of his way to understand exactly how it works. But I
0: think with complicity that 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 commitment yeah. translates to absolutely everything. everything. I mean, like down to every movement yeah. and every. Yeah. Yeah. and no, I'm, Extraordinary. He's yeah. extraordinary.
1: Yeah. Simon, Simon is the brain of of Complicité. Yeah. I mean He's been the focal point of it for many years, and yeah, his work is unbelievable. I mean, having having actually worked with him extensively on uh, a disappearing number and seeing his process it's just mind-blowing it's intense I think isn't it he's uh, intense but he's a genius I mean he is a genius in the true sense of the word the guy's mind works like no one else's it's incredible to watch Uh,
0: yeah I love also the thought with complicité that you've got loads of those performers who would have studied with Jacques Lecoq Mm. and there's also a kind of lineage of of yeah. theatre, of performance, yeah. that goes back a long way in the same yeah. way that I think you can tap into something that's existed for a long time.
1: I remember sitting in a, in a workshop that he did uh, where he, he was explaining to everyone uh, the art of comic timing. Mm-hmm. It was absolutely brilliant. It was so interesting. And he, he showed different ways in which he could react to just a noise in a room and how it could elicit a laugh yes and it was just fantastic just the timing of it and and the elegance of how he did it it was just so effortless and then he would do all kinds of physical exercises where he showed how you can acquire and it's kind of interesting from the point of view of, uh, of a musician as well in terms of when you practice piece of music or scales or whatever um The idea of how you can uh, how if you take on more and more difficult um, uh, kind of exercises, then you go back to the early ones. They seem phenomenally simple, yeah. and and it's it was interesting how he could develop your memory within the space of a very short time yeah. um, and a few exercises. Very very clever guy.
0: But then the site the science of comedy in that that way. Yeah. I, I yeah. know that. Um, that apparently Tommy Cooper's gag books contained because it looks so spontaneous when he's yeah, doing it, yeah. but absolutely rigorous, like line, look left, pause. Like it was absolutely right. re- really, really refined. The mm. detail was extraordinary. Mm. And then when you start watching it, you know he's. I think the gaps in the gag books, he'll he'll know where the laugh will be on all of those, Amazing. You know, and and how to how to roll it.
1: Well, that's really interesting because I mean, it's. That's fascinating because I mean obviously you have I mean when I worked with Sanj and we did the two man shows that really did teach me I mean also also working with Akram Khan on stage we we did a project called Confluence where I was on stage with him and we'd you know I knew that at a certain point in the evening when I when I told a story um there was a certain point that got a really good laugh and I'd kind of found different ways of milking that laugh every evening and I noticed, you know, you notice the timing changes that the, you know, how big a laugh you'll get or where the laugh will come and so on. So it's kind of, it's really interesting in the same way as when you DJ, for example, you know, seeing what what gets people onto the dance floor and, and sort of analysing that and, and seeing what will clear a dance floor as well, you know. Yeah. So, so it's kind of, you know, making sure that you're always on top of um, understanding understanding the nature of an audience, and, um, and and what their um, what their character is.
0: And do you hold that in your heart, like the idea of the architecture of a DJ set? Do you does that ever something that crops into your head when you're putting an album together for somebody else? Is that sort of.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, it's I would say when you talk about the architecture of a DJ set, you talk about narrative structure, really, and the dramatic arc, really. I mean, it's Gustav Freitag, really, going back to that idea of how. Um, a dramatic arc works in different contexts it's something psychologically that people engage with um you know across the board in in all kinds of contexts so you know you know as a as a fact that people if you put if you put information together in and then try to structure it around the concept of a dramatic arc that people will psychologically engage more and so i always try to have a degree of that with the shows I do or whatever I'm doing if in terms of an album or anything yeah. I'll think what is the arc what's the graph look like of how this is feeling you know and um, and I think that's really important because that's how you draw people into an idea
0: yeah and, do, and are there ever times when you're you're writing and there's and nothing comes out and and if so what do you do is that or is...
1: no more than conversation you know, I mean, if you if you uh, have a conversation with someone and then you hit a certain point, I mean, I've, I find the weirdest thing is lifts. Yes. When you get into when you get into a lift, for some reason there is pressure, and I don't I've never understood it. Yeah, yeah. There is pressure even if you know someone pretty well. There's pressure when you get in a lift because it's an enclosed uh, space and it's like you're all waiting to get to uh, your destination which is the ground floor whichever floor you're going to and and so there's a sense of tension and anticipation in the air Um, that's just subconscious because it's all about waiting to arrive. And so because of that waiting to arrive, there is a kind of sometimes it can be a charged atmosphere. It's very odd. And so I guess this is why I always think with music, it's important to engage with the process and with the story of what's going on and not be constantly uh, focused on the end result. And I think that's that's the case with... um, You know with uh making an album um and and kind of making sure that you you have a real sense of uh of a story that is actually unfolding in interesting ways that is going to keep people engaged at every point
0: yeah and that that sense of a of having a story i mean is that something when you if you're just tinkling away on a guitar are you are you are you conscious that you're trying to say something can you just idly
1: no i can i can idly play the guitar um but it's kind of more um it's if i'm thinking i need to write something um then i may not even start from music i may start from a poem i might write or i might start from just stringing a few words together um and um or i might look at an image or i may uh you know i may actually just literally uh think to myself okay what what kind of feeling what mood am i in right now um, what's going to come out if i focus on that mood it's it depends i mean it's, as, as you know yeah t-
0: talking about images do you when did you first start writing to picture when's the first sort of
1: well um formally um the first the first time i wrote to picture was in about 92 93 um it was uh it was for a bbc film called um flight uh which is about an asian women's refuge which starred um Miri it starred uh, Mina Anwar um, and Ravi Kapoor it was a really um, powerful uh, bit of uh, I think it was Alex Pillay who, who actually uh, directed it and it was a powerful bit of drama um, and, uh, and the way it worked was that uh, Alex had heard one of my pieces of music from the album Spirit Dance, it must be 93 I think he'd heard a piece because I, I, I put it out through World Circuit and he asked me if I like, he could use it and then he asked me if I had any more music like that I said no but I can create some yeah. and then from then on I was basically a film composer
0: and, and do you like the the fact that you have something to bounce off in that scenario that you
1: yeah very much that... i mean i think i think it's about inspiration I mean it was the same with uh, doing comedy Um, you know I do do kind of one-man shows now Um, sometimes I did one at Wigmore Hall earlier this year um, but I which I enjoy and I'll have guests come on and so on but essentially I'm just chatting to the audience and then doing various things but I I think it's um, you know it's what I'd like to with Sanj it's what I like with with a band you know it's this feeling of you know with with Arif you know we have the musical conversation you know which is based on Indian classical uh, rhythms and so on it's all about bouncing off someone else and I find that really exciting and um, dramatically powerful and the
0: picture really
1: helps you you oh definitely yeah I think in the same way sorry I didn't elaborate yeah I mean it's it's definitely the case that I mean yeah with with picture that's the thing you're bouncing off so or, or whatever you know it's it's kind of, um, I, I think it's exciting to have an idea, but it's more exciting to have an idea that that is inspired by something that you can learn from.
0: Yeah, um, I I know that we've we we don't have limitless time, and I, I sure. did want to touch on on politics, sure, which I know is something yeah. that you're.
1: Uh, I've noticed you very, as well, which is very good vocal. I like your politics, well,
0: <laughs> <laughs> well I, it, you know, that's. I was going to come to this later, but let's mm. let's talk about it now. That, that I think with you being a public figure, the risk that you take, the cost, the potential cost to you, and no doubt it takes an emotional toll being vocal about politics. Uh, I mean, I, I suppose yeah, that's what I'm asking. Is 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 what does it cost you because i mean to, i yeah. mean i think you're on, we're on pretty safe ground politically with mm. one another mm. but you know there are a lot of people who don't agree with you and mm. they're very vocal and very aggressive and there's some toxic stuff online yeah and but you're brave enough to keep pushing
1: it doesn't affect me i mean you know I, uh, basically if somebody comes at me you know the latest thing for example over the last uh, few days has been that I was calling out the fact that Jeremy Clarkson had said some disgusting stuff about Meghan Markle I'm not a royalist particularly, um, but it's kind of, you know, I, I think... And I said, you know, he said this stuff about a woman of colour, um, you know, in this context, and this is, um, you know, this is like this. And people say, why are you saying she's a woman of colour? I said, because she identifies herself as a woman of colour. You know, she's actually actually, actually come out and said, I'm a woman of colour. Yeah. So I call her a woman of colour because that's how she self-identifies. And people... The, the amount of vitriol and abuse... Uh, that I saw uh, yeah. from people uh, coming at me o- on that I just thought wow this is really interesting because it's and I said I, I said just ask yourself why exactly you're so upset by and that th- and they saw it as me then said so that they they felt the need to say oh are you saying that white women are not as valid valid as uh, as you know it's like how are you derive how's your logic working you're you're saying that by saying something that i'm actually you know i mean it was just but it's the same kind of bizarre arguments that, that happened around um, black lives matter where people are saying oh no all lives matter it's like yeah but this is actually about a particular issue <laughs> you know it's kind of frustrating of course all lives
0: matter but i i don't have to i don't have to fight for yeah it in the same yeah. way yeah. as someone of color does yeah. you know i
1: mean it's interesting though because people find it very hard to give any ground in recognising endemic issues of racism or endemic issues of um, misogyny or bigotry of any kind, because they feel in some way that it reflects on them the second, or or, or that they've somehow it undermines their life choices, yes. and um, and you know, and, and particularly if they've made life choices that are uh, that are actually inappropriate or. No longer and are are being questioned by society, they find it very difficult. And the problem is that, you know, these platforms, quite often, social media platforms, will. you know, especially now that Musk has taken over Twitter and so on, and it's clear that his politics aren't aligned with a lot of the users of Twitter. Yeah. Um, you know, the fact that he was now just being voted off Twitter. To, he, he actually as it, it happened. Yeah, he put out yeah. a poll saying, um, saying, well, he, he's not abiding by that. He's tra- right. He's saying that there were bots involved, and right, right, and it's okay. like, well, that's interesting. You're the head of Twitter. That's like, how come there's bots actually? So, but it's interesting because he he abided by everything. Else, but and yeah, he yeah. said he would do. Yeah, yeah But the the one that she says that he should go, he should he should no longer be the head of Twitter, uh, where where it was quite clearly, I think it was fifty seven percent said that he yeah. should go. Um, he he's refusing to go now, but I mean, I don't know if that's going to continue to be the case. I think he probably he's a businessman at some point he might actually recognize it might be in his interest to to, to to not stay yeah (laughs) Yeah. and to focus on tesla or other things that he was better at
0: yeah you you were talking about people's prejudices and Mm. i think often those kinds of things are learnt so early on Mm. i mean they are your upbringing your sort of social dna so when you question a prejudice of of especially a stranger on twitter who's hiding who is hiding behind you know, I mean, look at the way people behave differently in cars as they do yeah, as pedestrians. I, I mean, well. that well, I sort of, driving. yeah, I and mean, it literally it,
1: stops because uh, I saw so much aggression on the roads. I thought, I don't need this in my life. And
0: that, that, that you're, by challenging that prejudice, you're not just challenging a little opinion of theirs. Mm. You're challenging the whole fabric of their upbringing in a way, mm. that, because yeah. that's, presumably that's where it will be mm. coming from.
1: Mm.
0: So you're taking, you're not just taking on
1: mm.
0: an opinion, you're taking on...
1: But I'm all I'm doing. I mean, it's funny because I've only got one principle that is that every human being is born of equal value. <laughs> That's literally the only principle that I conduct pretty much all of my political opinions based on. Yeah. And and if you say that to people, they'll go, "Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah." No, I, I get it. it's very difficult to disagree with that. You're like an idiot if you do disagree with yeah. that. But but the thing is to follow that through is you know very few people actually will follow it through because it it puts them at odds with their own greed and their own uh, and their own issues and their own fears and insecurities and suddenly um, you know when you actually try to implement the in pragmatic terms the idea that every human being is of equal value in in terms of the principle of it people will will really struggle because suddenly they're kind of like butting up against um, all kinds of conditioning that they've yeah. had throughout their lives.
0: And do you? I know that the the question "Where are you from?" has been in the news recently. Yeah, uh, absolutely. That's that's like yeah, you know well, you know, I was going to say I was going I was going to say practice, clumsy, but yeah, yeah. but I think it's beyond clumsy. Mm. I mean, is that a question that you still get asked? And what and what do you say?
1: Well, it's interesting. There's a track by um, by. Riz Ahmed, uh, who I've known since he was about nineteen, um, who who came up—I mean, who's incredibly popular and successful now—who came up with a track um, on his uh, last album called uh, "Where are You From," uh, which actually is literally about that. It's a—it's just a poem about that, and I think it's a great poem for anyone to listen to. Um, but I think, yeah, it's it's this idea that we are when. It's it's how, the context of how people ask you as well, and um, and I think it's it quite often can be about um, imposing upon you a perception of you that that they want to uh, that they want you to fit into because of their own insecurities. So it's actually if you don't jump into the if you if you don't accept me putting you into the box of this stereotype that I have in my head, then I've got an issue. And I think that's where the frustration lies. So this, this happens a great deal. I mean, you know, I, I remember actually years ago um, being interviewed by one journalist for The Telegraph um, who came to interview a few of us um, when I was signed to a, a predominantly Asian label called Outcast Records in the 90s. And I remember this uh, particular journalist saying to me, how do you feel about being the leader of the Asian underground? I said, I'm not the leader of anything. I just make music, and this is what I do. And and he switched off his tape recording and he said, "Do you not realise I'm here to help you?" And you know, I said, uh, "No, I I didn't. I just thought we were doing an interview." And he got really angry, and he wrote that I had a chip on my shoulder because I because I questioned his his perception of who I was. He thought that I had I had a problem. You know, so it's and that's that comes across a great deal. But
0: that's you? sort of. That's like a sort of micro colonialism, isn't yeah, it? You yeah, know, exactly. you they want say?
1: to colonise your mind. As as Munda Yunapingu once said on yeah. one of my albums, who's the Aboriginal guy? He said, "It's colonisation of the mind that's the issue." Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, now, I, I, it's no secret that you're you've been quite critical of our our current. Government if you mm. can, if you can dignify them by calling them. A
1: government. <laughs> I see that you are as well. At <laughs> right.
0: the, uh, the moment, with we've got like waves of strikes, food banks being used more yeah. than ever, more more people being born into poverty, more children in poverty than Disgusting. before. And uh, a, do you think that's going to change? Do you think it's going to improve? And do you trust democracy to solve it? <sighs>
1: wow there's a lot of there's a lot in your in, in your multitude, <laughs> in multitude of questions that were in that one sentence. um i i think it's really difficult because um we have yeah i mean will it change i don't know um i hope it does but the, the problem is um that we have um we've gone since brexit there's been a lot of propaganda and all kinds of um, disinformation that's been hitting us from so many angles that it can be hard to see the wood for the trees and I think um you know it's gonna it's gonna take quite a fundamental shift to actually rid of our rid ourselves of a lot of the thinking that has dominated the media social media and government for for a number of years now um which is a a a uh, atmosphere that actually looks down on compassion and labels it wokeism. Um, human kindness has been uh, undermined on so many levels, um, and I think that, that that has to shift. We've got to find a way to, to claw back um, the idea that compassion is something that we should strive for. Human rights are something we should respect. You know, the the dignity of how we how we um, treat the elderly is something and and the vulnerable is something we need to really refocus on. Um, So I think that's going to be have to be a real shift to get away from what's what's been shoved down our throats for a number of years now. Um, And I, I think it's about motivation for that and about education Um, and where education really starts because it's not just in school it's it's all around us all the time every aspect of um of how we engage with society so i I think it's all those things really
0: and do you think i think the ballot box now is so intrinsically linked to to the media Mm. um, in the sense that the media has a huge influence over how people will vote do you think it's do you think democracy is pure enough to to get over no, this? No,
1: uh, I don't think it is right now. I think there are lots of issues. I mean... I mean, we could get into proportional representation, but you see what happened was that with the, the um, Lib Dems, uh, you know, when they when Nick Clegg was the leader of the Lib Dems, uh, what happened was that because they focused so much on uh, proportional representation, they didn't really have any principles when they did get into power. And they, they sold out on all their principles in order to align themselves more with David Cameron's uh, Tory uh, party of the time, um, which actually led to them dumping a lot of the things that they'd promised and said. And so I think it should be, we do need proportional representation, but we do need it to come with principles. And we do need to look at, um, we do need to look at how you can implement um, a kinder um, society without uh, compromising how uh, economics works. Uh, for society. So what I mean by that is, um, and this is the this is the thing that I've always talked about is that when I was at when I was at school, the first definition that was shoved at me about what economics was was it's the allocation of scarce resources to meet unlimited wants and not needs. Basically, it was the study of greed. And so we need to shift our thinking to look at what is needed by people, as opposed to what is wanted by people because unlimited wants is a huge thing because that's what makes us rip off the world and destroy the planet we're on and it makes us unkind and it makes us greedy. Uh, Whereas actually if we think about um, uh, unlimited needs, then we're always going to be thinking in the direction of compassion and and looking at how we help the most vulnerable people, and so I think it's about looking at the fundamental definition of economic policy and thinking.
0: Yeah, and uh, just in bringing politics perhaps back to music, I wondered if uh, we could just talk a little about. Yeah, I know you're um, involved with PRS, mm-hmm. and now yeah, it's I'm an, an it, it's a yeah. Yeah. so yeah involved yeah. is an understatement. <laughs> but but the 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 performer representation and streaming and and that remuneration, I think, is, yeah. is is a is a big issue at the moment, and I, I feel yeah. like there is a there is a glimmer of movement um, on that. I mean, I, I suppose perhaps we should explain that that streamers. I think people probably know, but streamers yeah. are, are are really not paying their way. You know, artists art, artists aren't getting what they deserve, and certainly yeah. performers. Yeah. Um, you know, I get a, a, a minuscule piece of. The pie when something gets played on the radio yeah. but i don't get anything for it for a streamer and that's yeah. and that's kind of what I, as we move from radio to streaming yeah. i think yeah. the structure of the business is changing what yeah. how do you see it evolving well, that's
1: the thing i mean it's it's about um changing the ecosystem yeah you, you know it's it's a lot of people have tried to name and shame certain organizations and and so on i i'm really not into that i'm i'm into the idea of cooperation and trying to see how we can shift things. I mean, for example, I mean, it goes on lots of different levels. Streaming is one, one aspect of that. Streaming revenue should be uh, the same as broadcast revenue. You know, it should be the case that, I mean, for example, from my own point of view, uh, I did the music for, um, for the film Mowgli, which was originally going to come out in the cinemas, yeah. uh, and then that shifted and uh, it was bought by Netflix, who then st- turned it into a stream film.
0: Yeah. I led the orchestra for
1: that. Yeah, well there you go. It was a, a lovely fantastic it, it was movie. a very jolly it was a lovely thing. It was great. <laughs> it came out really well. And I think it's um Andy, both, both Andy Zuckers, absolutely, right? absolutely Andy circus. But I mean it my point with it is that it's it changes quite a bit um, how what royalties you receive and so on. And it's the same, you know, with anything like that. You you can't predict as the composer what's going to happen. And It shouldn't be your job to do that. You're doing the same job. You're putting the same hours, you're putting in the same effort, the same everything what happens to that work afterwards shouldn't then you know determine your your income stream um you know if it, it, it as long as it's out there if it's whether it's on a streaming platform a broadcast re, uh, platform or a, or a public uh, platform you should still receive a decent income from it and because it's going out to the same number of people if not more and and so I think all those things have got to shift, um, but it is it is a process because obviously you're up against a, a lot of people who are resistant to that and, and big, big money and corporations don't really want to pay out anything if they can help it, so it's frustrating. And do you
0: see a parallel now with the time when artists on record labels were being very badly treated? I think particularly probably black artists and and Motown and and that shift do you think an, a shift like that is what's needed or
1: yeah absolutely i think it's it's about um being fair it's just about being fair to people and making sure that uh, and i think that also um streaming revenue is about also rewarding people you know at whatever level they are in the in the kind of the hierarchy of um, stardom, stardom, or celebrity, or or, or or you know, recording artists and so on. Because I mean, the way it works currently is that the the, the best-selling artists are, are rewarded a great deal more than the than artists, and and sometimes you know, the 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 revenue that should go to to um, uh, young developing artists doesn't go their way because of the way in which it all works, which is totally wrong. You know, it's actually increasing disparity of income at a time when that's already terrible. So, yeah, we just need to redress all these things. And I think that's... that's um, it, one other, you know, for example, recently, I was talking about um, looking at uh, women composers and um, the fact that there needs to be a, a fundamental shift to, you know, women composers and composers of colour as well um, to make sure that there is much more... Um, uh, there is much more opportunity for those people to actually be able to get a foothold in the in the industry of of being composers for film, television and so on. It's very frustrating because what happens right now is that there's a recycling of the same um, you know, it's it's very unfairly balanced. I mean, I noticed a few years ago when I did the music for a film called Breathe, that actually, um, you know, it was I was long listed for an Oscar for it. And there were out of 160 something odd people, only five of them were women and only one person of colour. And my whole point is that you need a fundamental shift in order to to get this to change. And I mean talking to um, Netflix, Amazon and so on about about mentorship schemes whereby composers who are established bring through younger um, artists and composers who are then able to... Um, build up a CV of working on various films and and learn uh, learn about that because apprenticeship schemes don't happen anymore because of the way in which everything's structured um, uh, economically. So so we need mentorship in in terms of really seeing how we can pragmatically bring people through.
0: Yeah, I, I think that you touch on the on a real problem which is that that it goes back. 20 years you know mm. so it, what's happening now is a reflection of who was educated and who was privileged 20 25 years ago yeah and and it's very d- difficult to to solve that immediately and I think that's it do, I mean it does take time and investment I think you have yeah, to I you have to
1: put your money where your mouth is, absolutely you know. comes back down to conditioning yeah. I mean it's about recognizing how people and society has been conditioned and that's why it's important to constantly question. You know why people are saying certain things. Why why people think a certain way. Where they're coming from when they, when they actually think that they are asking you some kind of a genuine question. When they say, um, when they say something about, well, don't all uh, lives matter instead of Black Lives Matter. You know, and they think that that's a. F- that's a reasonable question because of their conditioning, because they don't actually recognise endemic issues within society of inequity um, due to, to race or colour. So my whole point is that it's actually about educating people from a young age. I do believe that a lot of younger people now are recognising those issues and also have a much bigger concern about climate change and if you are concerned about climate change everything else follows through because you start to look at the global north the global south you have to look at how people are disadvantaged you know across the world by climate change and it predominantly affects people of color and so you know you start to look at the unfairness and the injustices in the world in lots of different ways and so I think the world is forcing us into a situation where we have to question conditioning because we have no choice yeah um
0: you you touched on something before about mentoring um and I just just to close I wondered it'd be really lovely if you had any advice that you might give to your to your younger self if you had a younger self sitting here what would you what would you say to 12 year old I oh, 12 years, well i don't know t- how well, it's I- interesting i got <laughs> asked that by my therapist oh, really? <laughs> a, a while ago
1: but i mean i i guess i i would always just say you know what well, trust in your intuition but make sure that you spend time um training your intuition as well and what i mean by that is just make sure that you um you you know you you spend time learning about various ways of thinking learning about various ways of 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 looking at music and musical expression and so on um so that you can trust your intuition because then your intuition will take you to the right place if you actually neglect your intuition that's when you end up lost
0: lovely but listen it's just been fascinating talking to you thank you so much for your time
1: (laughs) i hope any of that made the slightest bit of sense it was wonderful it was absolutely great (laughs)
0: That was the wonderful Nissan Sawney. Thanks for listening. I think you're supposed to do stuff like leave reviews and subscribe and all that kind of stuff. And I'd, of course I'd be very grateful if you did. But hey, we're all busy people. In the meantime, we'll be back in about a week's time with another interview. Take care.